She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode two, Gehenna. This episode was written by Chris Carter and directed by David Nutter. It was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, November 1st, 1996, at 9 p.m. When the X-Files should have aired, not that I'm bitter. (laughs) Just saying. In this episode, Frank Black is called to San Francisco by his contact at the Millennium Group after human cremains are discovered in a public rose garden. They find traces of at least seven victims. Dental records put them on the trail of a telemarketing death cult who must be stopped before someone else dies. (gasps) Whoa. Yeah, scary stuff. Yeah. Having not read the summary before, in the teaser that comes up, I had a totally different vibe for this episode that I was excited <laughs> about. And now I'm slightly disappointed, but I mean, it's still, Aww. yeah, it's still a good episode, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to that after the teaser. So okay. we'll get into it. We're in San Francisco. Yay. And we see two cars driving down a road and then they park and a guy from the first car gets out and he runs into a wooded area with some other people are milling around. And then the rest of the guys in the car are like waiting and the other guy comes running back and the driver tells the others, the dark prince returns. The first guy leans into the driver's side window and holds some drugs between his finger saying tickets to the horror show. And the driver takes them and the guy goes and gets back into the other car and then both cars drive off. And then in the car, the passenger of the car that had the drugs in it opens it up and there's a bunch of acid tabs in there. So he tears one off. And he hands it to a guy in the middle of the back seat. And one of the guys next to him barks at him like a dog as he ingests the drug. And then both cars arrive in this old abandoned parking lot warehouse area kind of thing. And everyone gets out and they're all like, Um, I'm not sure that's the best place to maybe go have a trip. But anyway, we see someone perched above them watching them through night vision goggles so we actually see the night vision goggles then we also see like their point of view where everything's all green and it's all night visiony and then the guy from the middle seat who took the drugs see some of the other guys running around like they have dog heads and are barking and so he's hope tripping hard maybe i don't know (laughs) and then one of the guys grabs him as he runs by and he's like hey man run and the dude's like what and then Everyone gets into the cars and closes the door. And the dude's like, hey, hey, we let me in. And they're like, nope. And they drive around in circles. And they're like hanging out the windows like, rah, like taunting him. And he's like, rah, and he finally runs. And he ends up in this abandoned rotting warehouse. And there's like rain coming down from the roof and dripping from a broken pipe and all this kind of stuff. And he looks up and then something jumps down on him. And we get all these flashes, super flash cut that it looks like the man in like the night vision goggles. But then it also looks like a wolf. And there's like claws or a demon or something with teeth and just tearing the dude up. And then it's the title sequence. Huh. And I was getting some heavy Lost Boys, but with werewolves. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's only acid, Michael. That would have been cool. It's only acid. (laughs) So second Lost Boys reference in a row. Oh, dear. 
Maybe we should. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if I have to force it, it won't be as fun. But man, it'd be sweet if we go through the whole thing with the Lost Boys reference every time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So we get our main titles, and mm-hmm. then at the end of the main titles, we get a quotation on screen that says, "I smell blood and an era of prominent madmen," and that is by W. H. Auden. So. I teased that I had a bit to say about the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. And so now we will go over that. So aside from the addition of the quotation, this opening theme sequence has 15 seconds of additional footage. Huh. It's mostly just small snippets of similar imagery slipped in between sections that kind of follow the alternating hot and cold color palette they're doing. But the most important addition, in my opinion, is a front loaded extension of the bedroom scene, because in the first episode, we kind of walk into a bedroom, we see someone laying in a bed, and then we cut to the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. In this one, we see a door, and then we see a hand push the door open, and then we watch their view as they go into the bedroom and see the person lying in the bed. So that's kind of creepy. Okay. And then we immediately cut to a similarly blue tone segment of a woman walking by herself outside a building, and it looks like she's being watched through the bushes by somebody. And then that's when the word worry appears as opposed to it appearing just in the bed because that was a much shorter segment. So that adds a little bit extra creepiness to it. The sequence itself kind of surprising that we didn't mention it last time. But again, I wanted to save all this stuff for this episode. It's extremely derivative of the X-Files sequence with all the different cutting stuff and the music and especially the clouds at the end. And then the yeah. words and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. super like, this is it. This is the guy who did the X-Files. The words appearing on screen. Anyway, but I do actually think it's a better sequence than the X-Files sequence. The thing with Chris Carter, like putting words on the screen, it gets old super fast. But at this point, to be honest, the X-Files opening sequence kind of irritates me. It gets my nerves. I always skip past it. And I think it's because it hasn't changed so far. Like in four seasons, it's been exactly the same. Yeah, um, I think it. I think it tweaks a little bit in maybe season five or season six. I forget which one it is where they tweak it a little bit. But and then obviously when we get to season seven and eight, they have to change it because yeah things. But I think it's I think it's just you need to mix it up, and so I think that's why yeah. I just kind of get some. See, and I just I love the X Files. That's one of my favorite things. Like I never skip past it. I'm always like, yay, it's the opening sequence. Yeah, well, I but... mean, plus two, then we don't have to get things like apology as policy. <laughs> Look, I like it when but... they put something different than the truth is out there. They're not all winners, but I like that they try. And honestly, any I mean, who cares is definitely up there. Yeah, no, that's competing not, I, for I think just, if you get out of the words altogether, like you could just lose the words. Like I get like the trust no one, the truth is out there. Like that's great. But then like all the other stuff they try, like just not some yeah. of it, yeah, it doesn't so, work very well. Yeah. They should kind of do what maybe I don't know. I heard about this podcast. That whenever there's a myth arc episode, they started putting trust no one at the end of their episodes. And so they could do that with the sequence, right? When it's a myth arc, you just put in trust no one instead of the truth is out there. But yeah. you know, who knows? Anyway, again, the zombie-like sequence in the beginning totally freaks me out. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is when we had the X-Files pilot. There wasn't an opening sequence. We just got like the X-Files logo and we went back uh-huh. into the show. And apparently the lone gunman does the same thing when they have their series. But Millennium gets what we're going to call a full opening sequence, mm-hmm. even though it's 30 seconds and it'd be in 45 seconds. The standard is 45 seconds. X-Files is 45 seconds. 
This one is 45 seconds, but they made a 30 second one for the first episode of Millennium. And I don't know why. Like, why did they cut a whole different version? Like, either just don't have one or use the 45 second one. I don't know why they went with a different one. Seems like a lot of work, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And then full disclosure, I actually prefer the pilot treatment for the X-Files and Lone Gunman. Or maybe like a 10 second thing like Supernatural did on the Supernatural episode. Having not watched Supernatural, I don't know if that's what they do for every episode. If it's just a little short thing or they actually have like a supernatural theme that they go through for like 60 seconds or whatever. But I really like the short thing. Yeah, I think they Supernatural is the short thing more often than not. They will do a lot of like the road so far and kind of tell you what's okay, happened like, before yeah, to carry gotcha. on my wayward son. And then they'll okay. do the little supernatural splash. They don't have like an opening song or theme song or anything. Yeah. I like to like, just get in and get out. Cause they roll credits over the actual episode anyway, when you, they come out of the sequence. So what else? <laughs> yeah. Again, if nothing else, we won't get apologies policy. If we just get the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, there's probably going to be worse ones than that in the future. So uh, yeah, that said, the opening of Kolchik the Night Stalker is a work of art and is a full 60 seconds long. So you can do longer openings. You just have to do them well. And usually they're not done well. I think in general, not just here with Chris Carter, but like in general, I think TV themes. Well, it just depends too on like but. what type of, you know, like is it a theme song where it's like, you know, fun to sing along to, or is it just kind of like a musical sequence with some stuff? I don't know. Yeah. I, I well, tend the thing to with like... a song is like, you have closing credits where you could do the same thing. Right. Cause mm-hmm. usually it's the same theme. Yeah. But like sometimes credits. like the psych theme song is one of the best ever. It's so good. Okay. And, like, you haven't seen it. So I don't know. Every maybe, time I'm like, yeah, I need to watch it so and good. find out. So yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't think psych is your thing to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> you might, I don't know. It's, it's funny. It's not like meant to be, you know, it's it's a comedy show. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, just the in general, I do think I said I think this one, if you got rid of the words, I think I'll I'll be honest too. This is gonna get a lot of people hot. And maybe it's just because I've gotten tired of it kind of. I like this theme music better than the X Files theme music oh, too. No, no, so no, no. I think well, I think it portrays the show. But I guess the the X Files theme music does portray the show pretty well. I think it does. I think yeah. this music also fits the show very well from what we've seen mm-hmm. so far. So they they both fit well and I, stylistically. I think this one. I think I think I'm just tired of the X Files one. Honestly, at this maybe. point, just, we watch a lot of the X Files. We in a do. Row, so and I, I really love it. I think Mark Snow did the music for this too, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. And then I didn't actually check to see there is like a credit for who does the title sequence kind of thing. I haven't checked to see if it's the same company that does the Millennium one and the X-Files one. I'm going to assume it probably is. So, but I didn't actually go back and check, but it's it's very, like I said, it's very kind of derivative a little bit. So just that little bit. Although it's got that weird, like the images of Frank Black and then his wife, Catherine, in that little segment towards the end, it looks very family drama. Like oh, uh-huh. we have a family drama. It's like oh, 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 and then we go back into like someone walking on the roof, like gonna fall off, and then yeah, clouds. But yeah, but I think that fits because I think there is gonna be some family drama action going on here too. Like that's gonna be well, yeah, the yeah, thing that is. anchors yeah. him. Yeah. It's just kind of it's, it's a little weird because we get all that other stuff, and then it's like being cut mm-hmm. in there. Although fortunately, they don't like change the music and make it all like family music. It's still the same music. So yeah, no, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Nick's opening credits corner. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. A lot of thoughts on that. I mean, you had the option of hearing it twice or hearing it once. And so I thought you might want to just hear it once. So, 
Yes. Probably a good call. Probably don't want to hear it at all. But anyway. I mean, some of it's interesting. Like, I I like knowing that, like, you know, what you think of it and stuff. But yeah, I do wonder, too, if maybe they didn't have a full version yet when the show. I mean, they worked on it. Apparently, one thing we didn't talk about last episode was that the pilot, much like the X-Files pilot, they actually had like way more money and way more time to shoot it than they do for regular episodes of the season. Mm-hmm. I guess they were able to shoot the pilot for Millennium like over the course of a month, which oh, I think wow. is actually what they did with X-Files too. Like was shot over a course of a month, whereas the episodes themselves are usually shot over the course of a week because mm-hmm. weekly, right? So yeah, so hopefully we won't see a big shift in quality. Yeah. So Frank climbs up a ladder that's propped against the side of his house and he's installing light bulbs on a security light. And his neighbor, Jack, comes over and starts chatting. And Frank says the security light will be good for when it gets dark earlier. And Catherine is getting home from work. So when she pulls up, it'll come on. And Jack is pleased to hear that she got the job because apparently he's been hanging out a lot. He knows what's going on. And he's like, what is it she does again? And Frank says she's a clinical social worker. And then Catherine comes out and tells Frank that he has a phone call. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't like Jack at all. (laughs) Do not like Jack. He appears out of nowhere. He asks way too many questions. <laughs> He's just don't want someone him. up in your business. You just don't want. Yeah. He just is creepy. Creepy, creepy, creepy. So on the phone, it's Peter Watts who tells Frank that he's down in San Francisco looking at what might be a multiple homicide. And Frank is like, well, you can send me the details. But Peter tells him that the lack of detail is sort of the concern. And he's like, I could really use you down here. So Frank agrees to make arrangements and he hangs up and he tells Catherine. He's like, when? He's like, as soon as I finish putting in the lights. He's going to go finish putting in the light bulbs and then he's gone. Yep. So then we're in San Francisco and Frank arrives at like a community garden kind of place with like roses and everything. And Peter is there to greet him. And he says that members of the gardening club have noticed ashes being deposited near the rose beds over the past few weeks. And they didn't really think anything about it. But then one of the gardeners notified the authorities when they found this. And we pull back a branch and there's like an ear laying <laughs> in some ashes. Like a human ear. Like a human ear, like a burned up human ear. And Peter says it appears to be from an adult. <laughs> yep. Yep. Good times. Good times at the gardening club in San Francisco. So Frank starts to have flashes of visions of a young man fending off an attacker. And Peter says that San Francisco PD thought it might be a case of illegal crematory dumping. But then Frank says, no, the killer knows the victim. He wants to watch him suffer. And Peter says they probably have multiple victims here. And Frank says that it's important to the killer that he burns them alive. (sighs) And Peter's like, why? Which fair question, but Frank doesn't know. Dude, what is it in San Francisco where people like to burn people up? Because that's what I know. In hell money too. I know. It's like every I'm like so excited to get to San Francisco. I'm like, I love this city. It's so great. And then it's always like horrific. And I have to like block it out so I can sleep burn later. It's- people or there's ghosts trying to get back the mask you just bought at the little curio shop. Yeah. Oh man. So back at the black home in Seattle, Jordan is playing with Benny, her dog. Apparently she has named him Benny. And Catherine comes in and says it's bedtime and the dog has to sleep downstairs, which boo, mom, boo. 
Well, I think also it's because Jordan is playing with Benny instead of sleeping. I think that's yes. part of the issue too. That's yeah. probably yeah, 100%. <laughs> that dog probably creeps upstairs and sleeps on Catherine and Frank's bed, to be honest. But yeah. so Jordan's like, when's dad coming home? Is he working, catching the bad man? And Catherine tells her that if there's a bad man, she's sure daddy will catch him. And then Catherine stands and she turns off the light. But then she notices the security light is on outside. And, you know, it's one of those motion sensor lights. So it only clicks on if something's moving around. Yeah. So like when she drives up from her job, the lights will be on that way. She right. The house, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So or if someone walks up to the house, it'll go on mm-hmm. so you can tell. Or if a yeah. bear comes to eat through your trash can or something. Not that that. Yeah. Because that happens all the time in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> Much in Seattle. But I'm from Lake Tahoe. It happens there. So she looks down and she sees a shadow move over the grass. <gasps> so she goes downstairs and she watches through the window and the security light goes out so she's like okay whatever it was it's probably gone so she closes the blinds and then the phone rings and it's frank and she tells him that she got spooked by the new security light and she's like i'm sure it was just a cat or something and he's like well have you locked all the doors <laughs> you all locked mm-hmm. up yeah especially she- him because what we learned last episode yeah they're just like walking into places and killing people so yeah yeah so she says that they're fine and it's a perfectly safe neighborhood but then frank has to go so they hang up yeah benny has grown substantially since we last saw him he's yeah. a much larger dog i realize that animals grow very quickly and time has definitely know. passed yeah yeah but just yeah he's much larger i mean he's not like a giant dog but he's definitely not a small puppy that frank could have in his shirt when he comes in the house anymore so also why you got all your blinds open at night like close your damn blinds dude like what are you doing you like living in the hole? freaks me out and i know people and i've been to people's houses where they just like leave them open all the time and like there are those apartments that are all just like glass walls and stuff and i'm just like that having mm-hmm. my blinds open after dark mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. i can't mm-hmm. do it either mm-hmm. i have to close nope. the curtains i have to close ones i don't want anyone looking in that freaks me out so i'm glad you're on the same page because i hate no. that and what's worse is that at night you can't see who's outside because right, the lights in your apartment act yeah. like a mirror, right? But people inside can totally see in, super clear. Yeah. So no, yeah. I always as Mm-mm. soon as it's dark out, if not before, my blinds are Mm-mm. always closed. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. The is... guy, like Jordans are open, and she goes downstairs, and they're all open. And it's like close your blinds. I mean, maybe oh she just God. hasn't gone around to closing them oh yet. But yeah, that is something I always. It is do. dark. I'm sorry. It is dark, dark, dark. <laughs> and she's had time to close them blinds before she goes up and tells Jordan to go to sleep and takes Benny away. <laughs> Whew, man. <laughs> mm. Jack is probably all like looking through the windows because he's creepy. <laughs> he probably is telling his wife, he's like, Hey, Wanda, I just gotta check on the neighbors real quick, make sure they're yeah. okay. <laughs> oh, darn, she closed the blinds in Jordan's room. I can't watch Jordan now. Oh, God, oh. Gross. <laughs> Heard you had a daughter. Oh, God, he's so <laughs> I hate it. I, I hate Jack so much. <laughs> I'm really hoping that I like at the end of the series, he is going to be like us. He's going to be the one that has been sending the photos all the time. Like he moved there ahead of time. And oh, yeah, the super creepy dude, because I all justified it in my hatred for him. But man, he just, oh. <laughs> oh. anyway. <laughs> so we said Frank had to hang up and leave. And then we got distracted by blinds and everything. So Peter introduces Frank to Jim Penn Sears. He worked at Vicap just after Frank left which is the violent crimes section of the FBI. They shake hands and Frank asks what he found. 
Jim says the excavation of the site is still incomplete due to an issue with the parks department, but he thinks they managed to separate most of what was in the plant beds. They have 39 pounds of human remains, mostly ash, the equivalent of roughly seven adults. Yikes. And then Frank has this vision of people trapped in a chamber beating on a window. And then Jim says that dating the remains is difficult, but there does appear to be more than one deposit. So there's like strata of the ashes <laughs> and that the remains are clean with no large fragments aside from that ear, which indicates extreme heat because bone carbonizes at 1400 degrees. I'm assuming we're talking Fahrenheit here, but he'd put it at probably 21 or 2200. The ear shouldn't have survived at all, but it did somehow. And they're like, I don't know how, but it did. And they made a mold of the ear and then they found something else. The tissue contained traces of LSD <gasps> and phosgen, which is a relatively uncommon gas that comes from sites using carbon tetrachloride. And Frank is like, dry cleaning fluid. And Jim tells him there was an accident at a dry cleaning clearing facility here seven years ago. They've got a block of abandoned buildings down at Pier 23. Oh, that's a good clue. That's a good clue. Yeah. Yeah. All that from an ear. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty lucky yeah. that you survived somehow. Yeah. Jim is played by Chris Ellis, who played Sheriff Hint in The X-Files Season 3, Episode 22, Quagmire. We talked about his other credits in that episode, but they include- We also kind of talked about him last episode. We, we did, yeah. A little like, give me some people to search this part of the lake. So, yeah. Yeah. And his credits include NCIS, CIS, The West Wing, and The Office. Wow. Makes the cop stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So Frank and Peter go to those buildings on Pier 23, and they enter one with them. They got their flashlights, because of course you got to go at night always got yeah go at night. you can't go during the daylight hours that's no, not you how gotta you go during night crimes. that's the best way to find stuff is to go at night because <laughs> then you get flashlights and it looks cool on <laughs> camera peter notes that there's not much of anything left and frank asks who owned the building and peter says the city they've actually been for sale for years but they haven't found any buyers frank shines his flashlight on a rust colored mud puddle and he has a vision of the young man from the teaser being attacked and then frank looks up and he has another flash and then peter asks what he thinks they've been doing in there and Frank suggests that this is where the victims were subdued. And then Frank is walking around and he shines his flashlight on another puddle. And he calls Peter over to look because alongside the puddle, there's a bunch of teeth. <sighs> Big old teeth, too. They got yeah. some long roots on those teeth. And one of them actually has an intact metallic crown. You can see it on the tooth. And then it's commercial. This episode has got my worst. It's got like fire and then it's got teeth. And those are two things I do not want to see. Which I think teeth are one of the things that usually get left over when you do that. It's one of the things that they yes. like, usually have to grind down is the teeth and then like the the, the like the ball sockets on your on your hips and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Usually some of the things that have to be ground down when they do cremations. I probably I know, know more about that than I but, should, oh. but anyway. No, I know. I listened to like a Stuff You Should Know episode about that. Now I feel like I know way too much about that. And also had nightmares after that. I don't know why I did yeah, that. Because bone is hard to burn. It is. Very hard it to is. burn. Yeah. And also teeth are gross. Anyway, then we're at the forensic lab. They make eating easier though. <laughs> I, do, I mean, I like having teeth. I don't like looking at teeth. Like when kids have loose teeth and they're like, let me show you my, and I'm like, no, I don't want to see that. Please do not show me. Well, teeth are like whiskers. Like, yeah, I know. You pluck out a whisker. 
Like I'm talking, and I'm talking people whiskers. Not don't, don't be plucking out cat whiskers because that's messed up. But no, anyway, but they like, lose their whiskers. Super deep. At least my hairs are super deep. But like teeth, also a lot of teeth. So like you just see teeth laying there, they look gigantic. Yeah, because there's a lot you don't see in gums. Yeah. So then we're at the forensics lab in the San Francisco Hall of Justice. Ooh, super friends. Dun, 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 dun. Hall of Justice. <laughs> Woo. Yes. Super friends. And Peter examines the tooth and he says the crown is relatively new on the 16 molar relative to the other work. Frank asks if there's any indication of how it was removed. And Peter says from the scoring, it looks like it was pulled with a crude metal tool. Mm. He picks up another tooth and he says there's a cuspid filling that's state of the art. while the others have crude work indicating that that work was done somewhere else. Based on the x-rays, some of the work looks like it was done in the way that it's usually done in Eastern European countries and Russia, which would jive with the poor condition of the teeth. And Peter tells Frank that Jim is running the teeth through the records with the police department. And then Jim walks in and says he has a surprise for them. And another man, Mike Atkins, walks in with him. And Peter asks what he's doing there. And he makes a joke about how he and the fish both needed a day off because he was fishing and a lot, I guess. He's retired. Mm. And then Frank says hello to Mike, who thanks him for coming in on such short notice. And then Mike's like, Frank, you got a second? Because apparently they need to talk. So, yeah. So outside, Frank and Mike take a walk. And Mike hands him an envelope that contains the Polaroids of Catherine and Jordan. Mike says he didn't tell anyone about them as requested, but he was upset when he saw them. He can only imagine how Frank must have felt. And Mike appreciates Frank confiding in him. Frank says Mike is the reason he was able to come back to work. And then Mike asks if Catherine knows about the new photos. And Frank shakes his head. And Mike's like, hmm. You're right not to tell her. <laughs> I disagree with that. We'll get to that later. But he thinks there's a low risk potential in the photographer escalating from the stalking phase. It's been years since the first mailing, and he's still keeping a safe distance. He doesn't want to be discovered. And Frank is like, even though he followed us to Seattle? Been right next door. <laughs> and Mike says he'd be concerned if it was really about Catherine or Jordan. But this person is sending the photos to Frank. He then is like, what's the object of terrorism? And Frank says, terror. And Mike thinks that's all this guy wants at this point. And Frank's like, well, if that's the case, he's a success. And Frank asks if Mike has found anything else. And Mike says the film was bought in Washington, but there's no contamination on the film or package. So they weren't able to like identify anything. Yeah. And Frank is like, so you brought me out here to allay my fears? And Mike tells them that they need him down here on this case. They need his abilities. Mike has a bad feeling about this case. And Frank agrees that it's not like anything he's seen before. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, like, there is an argument to be made about not worrying somebody unnecessarily. So I get what Mike is saying and what Frank is hoping he's doing and not telling Catherine about the photos. But I don't know. I mean, there's also an argument that Catherine should be aware of any potential danger so she can be vigilant 
and you know double sure to make sure she's locking all doors look around when she's parking and getting in and out of cars tonight yeah that kind of thing and i would hope she already does that but like i don't know like i was thinking like would i want to know and i probably wouldn't but i also wouldn't want my husband to keep it for me particularly if it meant our daughter might also be in danger so i feel like he probably should tell her even if there's a pretty low risk yeah, That's I mean, we assume that she knows about the last ones. Yeah, it sounds like she knows about the first set. Especially so with she... the effect it had on him. I'm yeah. assuming that she... Well, he even says, does she know about these photos? But it sounds like she yeah. knows about the first ones. But then how so... long did it take for her to know about those? Did she only find out because it like totally crippled him? And so... Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. exactly so i yeah, i think that no well there's no danger you don't need to tell her i think that's kind of bullshit but that's my opinion yeah yeah it's, i mean it's, it's a tough call it is cool. it is and mike atkins is played by robin gamel who's also appeared on the commish murdy she wrote and star trek the next generation among others so then we see a young man working in a telemarketing company offering someone a free sample of their hair care product and the person on the phone was like, yeah, I'll try a free sample. And so he's like, okay, we just need a name and address. Oh, and a credit card number for future purchases. So, Scam. Yeah. And the room is full of dudes doing the same thing. All guys, all young guys. And they're all at phones sitting at just big, long tables with phones calling people hair care products. And then in front of the room on a projection screen, there's a slide that says create desire. And we see this dude walking down the row of the people calling and he stops at one guy and he looks at like the clipboard in front of his phone and he's like, no orders written. And the guy's like, not yet. And then the other dude walks away. And then as he walks away, the projector changes to read everybody wants beautiful hair. (laughs) Okay. And the dude who is at the phone who doesn't have any orders written, he looks a little nervous when the guy walks up and then when the guy walks away too. Yeah, he does look kind of realize that Maybe he might be in trouble for not having any orders so far. So then we cut to Frank and he's in a car and he's holding a printout of a copy of a community college ID from Petaluma Community College for an Edo Bolo. And then Peter is driving and he says this man whom the dental records match was reported missing six months ago by his parents. The parents are naturalized citizens. They came from Chechnya when Edo was 15. Ido has a rap sheet that included breaking and entering, minor assault, and possession. So, because Frank is flipping mm-hmm. through like all his files and stuff. And Petaluma is about an hour north of San Francisco, proper across the bay in Sonoma County. So, yeah, that's where my grandparents lived when I was a kid. Oh, one set of grandparents. The others yeah. lived in Marin. So, okay. I've been to Petaluma once visiting someone who was going to school in Petaluma. At like some weird hippie commune college. So anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of that area. It's like right on the outskirts of like a bunch of farmland that was like developed into suburbs, and so it's got like that farm small town vibe. But then also like there's a lot of hippie vibes there too. Yeah, with a friend from high school, and they went to this school who was like all international, Greenpeace, Amnesty International, kind of, that, that <laughs> yeah. kind of vibe, feeling kind of thing. That was big in the mm-hmm. early 90s which is when that happened because i graduated at the end of the 80s and so she was in school at the end of the i remember if that was like an 89 or 90 but it was pretty close to that anyway so they arrive at the bolo home where the police are already there and mr bolo is sitting at the table 
and he doesn't look happy because he's they've obviously just told him they found his son right his son has been missing for six months right now he knows his son is obviously dead so frank introduces them and says they're sorry about his son and peter says they want to find out what happened and mr bolo was like for six months you couldn't find him and now you want me to help you and frank is like we're not the police and they believe that Ido might be one of several victims. And so Mr. Bolo says that Ido wouldn't listen. He had his own ideas. They were put into his head by those friends of his. And Peter's like, what friends? And he's like, they drove those German cars. And then one day, Ido came home driving one of those cars too. He was working selling products over the phone that no one wanted. And then he <laughs> said that Ido told him he was going to be rich, but he couldn't tell them where he worked. So... Mr. Bolo yeah. is not impressed with the hair care products. Mr. Bolo has a wicked mustache, though. It is sweet. Man. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Peter asked if they'd heard from Ido recently. And Mr. Bolo says that six months ago, he sent them a terrible letter. And that's why they called the police. And then Bolo goes into the next room where his wife is sitting. And he comes back with the letter. And it's in Russian. And he asks if they want him to translate it for them. And Frank is like, no, like, we don't want to put your wife and you through that right now. Like, you know, but thanks for letting us, you know, have the, I guess they're going to take it or at least make copies of it or something. And then he also asked if they can have the envelope too. And Mr. Bolo hands it over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had one little quibble here with because they emigrated from Chechnya. I'm thinking the letter maybe should have been in Chechen, not in Russian, especially given the history of that area but everyone in former soviet republics is like bilingual at least and speaks fluent russian and then their own language as well so it could be either way i get it i mean either either choice would have been like a political choice seriously and so being tv russian was probably easier to go with so they went with russian but um yeah Yeah. and especially When we're recording this right now, that's incredibly relevant because we're recording this on February 26th, which, yeah, ooh, there are some things going yeah. on and in also, Russia that are not super cool. Yeah, Portland has a huge Ukrainian population as well. Okay. And so I'm, I know, like, because I work at a community college, funnily enough. And so I'm, you know, work with students a lot who are Russian and Ukrainian. And like, it gets interesting sometimes because you, you could accidentally say that someone is speaking Russian. I mean, I am aware of this and so, but you will hear sometimes that, you know, you can, people will get really upset if you think they're speaking Russian oh, yeah. and they're speaking Ukrainian and vice versa. So it's one of those things. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like, there's just, yeah, a lot of stuff in that area, but mm-hmm. I'm not an expert by any means. I've just been on Twitter watching a lot of news lately and it's been a lot. So yeah, Whew, very intense. But just given the time period when they would have emigrated right, from yeah. Chechnya, I'm thinking that they probably would be in private speaking Chechen, not probably. Russian. Yeah. But again, it's what you're comfortable with. Right. And, right. and obviously like, in Chechnya, like Russification was a thing, like you mm-hmm. had to learn Russian. So, you know, if that's what he learned in school, he might be more comfortable with that. Parents would obviously speak it too. So maybe it's more comfortable for Edo to use Russian than yeah. Chechen. So I get it. But also, it's just simpler for TV to be like, it's yes. Russian. Yeah. So, still, wicked mustache, wicked mustache. <laughs> I want to say it's like Stalin level mustache, but that is not a good look. So it's a good mustache, though, Mr. Bolo has. 
I'm impressed with it. I like it a lot. <laughs> anyway. So later they have the letter up on an overhead projector. It's at some sort of office. I don't know if this is the Millennium Group's headquarters or office. I'm not sure. I would guess so, but we don't really ever get clarification. Yeah. And Peter says the salutation in the letter is to Ito's mother and that he's disowning her. And he translates, I am cutting the ties that prevent my ascendance to a higher state. My birthrights and all of my earthly possessions have been burned in a sacrificial fire of my new faith. And Mike is like, ooh, that's cult indoctrination. And Peter says as a reference to the burning in the fires of Gehenna, if I should dishonor myself or my new brothers. Mike says Gehenna is Hebrew for hell. And Peter puts a new page on the overhead projector and continues translating about how all he fears is vengeance of the all-powerful one in the pouring red rain. And then when he says that, Frank has a vision of a young man on the ground and his face is covered in this like red rain. Yeah. And Peter translates, the end is coming. The numbers have been miscalculated. 24 times 15 are 360 adjustable by and Mike finishes 286.1. And so Frank and Peter turn to look at him and Mike says there's a deliberate error in the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is an architectural anomaly that some prophets have cited as an error in our calculation of the true calendar year. Some believe it sets the correct date of the apocalypse at 1998. Ooh. yeah which is two years away from now so in the show obviously not from now now and jim jokes that they should plan their investment strategies accordingly <laughs> and peter finishes translating the letter which says that the weak shall perish and Edu is with his new family now he must renounce his parents and his belief in anything but the power of enterprise which resides in the hearts of the faithful And so Peter turns off the projector and he's like, oh, someone really got in this kid's head. And Mike doubts he's writing in faith. And Frank thinks maybe he wrote the letter out of fear. And Mike says the use of the word Gehenna is strange. The use is archaic and found only in certain translations. And Mike also notes that someone powerful got a hold of this kid. And Frank says, or something. I'll kind of look at it when he says that, too. They're like, yeah. Yeah. Mike also says something about like when they're talking about like whether he wrote it in fear or not. Mike says something about like he's using a lot of transitive verbs. And so I guess like the the word choice you would use, uh, especially because Russian is a super complicated language to learn, apparently. So even mm-hmm. though they don't have articles, which is weird, no us or thes in Russian. You learn that when you work with Russian students and Ukrainian students and Chinese students too. Chinese doesn't have any articles definite nice. or indefinite. So anyway, Catherine returns home at the black residence, which is actually yellow. But anyway, she <laughs> helps a sleepy Jordan out of the car and carries her inside. So they're a two car family. So Frank yes. has his red Jeep Cherokee. And then Catherine apparently has a blue soccer mom minivan. So we see that someone is standing outside watching the house as Ooh. Catherine carries a sleepy Jordan into the house. And then later, Benny is barking. And Catherine goes down and grabs the mail from the floor. And then she gasps because there's a silhouette of a man standing in the door <gasps> because their front door is like all glass with like, like metal work and stuff. And so it's basically uh-huh. a big giant, like it's not a stained glass window because it's not colored, but it's basically just a big glass window, which is not. But it's opaque. So you door. can't really see. Yeah. Well, and also there's yeah. like curtains behind it too. So 
Yeah. It's a little thin trim. Yeah, the silhouette of a dude standing there. Ooh, and then it's commercial. And we've seen the front door of their house many times, even though we've only had two episodes. And the glass pane design on the front door in this episode is different than the design that was in pilot. Oh, we actually okay. see it earlier in this episode, notice. and I didn't notice it until here. In fact, going back and checking, the entire front of the house is different. Huh. Because, like, in the pilot, the door is there, and the door is, like, you know, got the glasswork. And it has, in the center of all the glasswork, it's like a badge. It's like it's like a police badge or something. It's like a little, you know, like a shield kind of looking thing. Like old-style Captain America shield, not the round one, that kind of thing. Like a police shield. But in this it's episode, probably it's probably meant just, to be like a crest, right? Not a shield. It's probably supposed but... to be a crest. Yeah. But I was just yeah. thinking, like, oh, cops. Anyway. <laughs> but in this one, it's just like all, it's just like, you know, design work. It's nothing else. But then also in pilot, there are two flanking side, very thin windows that run along the side of the door. And in this episode, there aren't any. Oh, okay. And they so, maybe couldn't use the facade or the front of the house well, that they were like using. I did. The house that they used for the outside of the house in the all the main shots was apparently, which makes sense because we talked about how like it's a really nice looking house and what it would cost. It's apparently in a very exclusive neighborhood of Seattle. And they were very like <laughs> about coming and filming there. So they probably had to do everything else like in, you know, studio or found some other location. Also, we did talk about the fact that they had more time and money with the pilot as opposed to the regular episode. So it may have just been simpler to use a different location for the house that they just, yeah, um, they found a similar colored house that people aren't going to notice. I noticed. <laughs> I didn't notice. So. Yeah. I just, I, the only reason why I noticed is because that, that shield in the right. window in pilot really caught my eye because I was thinking like police badge. And so I was like, Oh, I wonder if that's intentional. And then in this one at the door, I'm like, Hey, it's different the badge was gone so it's because i noticed the badge That's yeah i noticed so yeah but then when i went back and looked like i said the actual entire front of the house is different and even when they walk in in the first episode when they walk in like they walk in like the living room is super huge on all sides and in this one there's like when the front door opens it almost like there's a wall right there so it's not even like, oh, okay. open as much and spacious because yeah. they probably can't film in as fancy of a house so yeah. probably not I got the eyes, man. I got the eyes. I'm watching you. <laughs> Again, script supervisor, Nick Sage. Yeah, you would be good at that. You really <laughs> would. That, that is in your skill set for sure. So we come back from commercial and the man, the silhouette is like, Catherine, it's Bob Bletcher. And so Catherine's like, whew, and she opens the door <laughs> and he's like, is everything okay? And she's like, oh, you scared me half to death. And he tells her that Frank called and asked if he would just stop by to make sure everything was all right. That he seemed a little worried about her and Jordan. And Catherine thanks him and tells him they're fine. And she asks if he wants to come in. And he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. She's like, I'm going to put some coffee on. Because Catherine <laughs> is tired of people just hanging out around her house. like not Yeah. And being social. Which, so. to be fair, I would too. Like, uh, you know, you don't have to sit in your car. Just talk to me like I'm a person. Don't treat me like I'm yeah. some weird appendage of my husband. Thank you. Yeah. So then later they're sitting at the table and they're drinking coffee and she asks how much Frank told him about, and he's like about his breakdown. And he says that only a little more than he'd already heard. Frank did tell him about the Polaroids and how after he found them, he couldn't leave the house. And Catherine says that he was paralyzed, but not by fear, 
by something deeper, by understanding, because he knows the criminal mind. So Mm -hmm. Bob says they talked about that, how Frank can like see into the darkness and see what the killer sees. (laughs) And Catherine doesn't know how he ever went back to work. Bob says he was approached by that millennium group. And Catherine says, yeah, but he went back to work because he had to. It's who he is. And that's why she can't ever let Frank think that she and Jordan are anything but safe in this perfect house, in this perfect world that he thinks he's created for them. Because if he ever thought otherwise, he would not be able to leave again. Mm-hmm. Yep. She knows what's up. Mm-hmm. And then we cut and we see those same fancy German cars driving around in a circle in that weird area where they were driving around before. And then they all stop and they get out and everyone kind of comes out and there's music playing from the car stereos. And they're all, there's one guy. It's the guy who didn't have any orders written on his thing. In the call <gasps> center, By the way. Oh. And they're all, he's kind of looking like maybe he took a little bit of acid and everyone else looks like they're pretending like they took some acid maybe. And then they're circling him and then they get back in their cars and they won't let him in again. And they drive around in circles and yell at him. And he's like, ah! and then we also see the night vision dude. Like looking at them all again from above. So it looks like we're going to have the same thing happen. Uh oh. So he gets spooked just like the other guy and he runs. And he runs towards the same place that the other guy ran to. He runs inside. And then as soon as he runs inside, boom, someone grabs him. But it's Frank. And Frank is like, it's all right. I'm not going to hurt you. <gasps> <gasps> oh, good yeah. thing Frank was there. Yeah. And that that thing that like is whatever it was isn't there to kill both of them yeah Yeah. werewolf goggle guy Mm -hmm. so then we're at the san francisco police department and peter and jim are sitting in an interrogation room with the young man and he's like i don't know anything and mike is watching through the two-way glass and they ask him his name and he's like bob smith because obviously he doesn't want to give them a real name um it's also the name he gave over the phone in the call center by the way yeah maybe that's his new name (laughs) that's his cult name that's the name he's been given yeah so frank comes into the viewing room with coffee and he asks mike if they've gotten anything and mike tells him not yet he just keeps saying that they're talking to a dead man and mike asks frank what he was doing out there and frank says he went back to satisfy his curiosity about what happened the other night and frank thinks he knows what this smith person is afraid of and mike says in that case Maybe you should talk to him. So then we see Frank is in the interrogation room with Smith, quote unquote. And Frank is like, you've seen it, haven't you? Seen the hideous face like Ito did. Seen the red rain falling. And Smith looks at him and Frank's like, I've seen it too. I know why you're afraid, but you're safe from it now. And Smith is like, no one's safe from it. And Frank doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's like, it knows everything. It knows the numbers. And Frank's like, what numbers? And Smith says, that's all there is. Phone numbers, serial numbers, card numbers. Numbers are all we are. It knows your number and it knows you. (sighs) And Frank's like, well, what does it want? And Smith says, obedience, obedience and control. And Frank's like, in return for? And Smith says, to share in the power when the end comes. And then he continues on about the end and the prophecy and he starts crying and he says, he told me we were going to be rich. 
that we were the chosen ones. And they also said that they could leave whenever they wanted, but that was a lie. No one could leave. They made them turn on each other. And Frank's like, did it kill Ido Bolo? And Smith nods. And then Frank has a series of like vision flashes, including the man with goggles and Ido on the ground and the creature. Mm-hmm. And we Smith shifts. Yeah. And Smith shifts and says, yes, because he was weak, because he lost discipline, just like the others, just like I did. Once you've lost your faith in discipline, it will devour you. You can't save me from it. And then Smith starts shaking and then he starts like seizing, like having like a seizure, like he's just mm-hmm. having a seizure and Frank tries to help him. And so then others rush in and someone yells to like get a doctor and Frank tries to administer CPR. Yeah. Peter checks his pulse and is like, mm. and then it's commercial. Yep. It doesn't help, but at least Frank didn't stop like after five seconds, like Scully does. Like he kept going. He doesn't keep going for very long, though. He quits pretty quick. He's going until the commercial break. He keeps going. He doesn't stop. Yeah. It didn't seem like it was that long to me because I actually noticed that and I was like, oh, TV CPR. He gives up pretty fast. No, he actually, I don't think he gave up. I think they just went to commercial because they cut the Peter and Peter has that look of like, might as well stop, dude. And then they show Frank like going to pump and then he might stop and then, but then it goes immediately commercial. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I have an idea of what happened. I was going to save it and put a pin in it. But they just kind of walk away from it. I was thinking because we had the whole tea thing. We were talking about all the different dental work that maybe he had a cyanide tooth. Oh, and since okay. like he, said he shifts, like his whole demeanor changes, right? When he starts saying like he was weak and he starts like sitting up straight and like more like determined and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, he like, like his like programming kicked back in and then he's kind of like bit down on his little cyanide thing and died. Yeah, I don't know. Do we find out what happens? I don't think they just do, say. Right? He, well, later they're going to say he basically just died of fear, and so oh, like, okay. he's full of drugs. So who knows what <laughs> killed him? They never say. Yeah, but I was thinking like putting the teeth together with like oh, gotcha. Kind of okay, because they we, we do find out there's a lot of drug and chemical stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, which yeah. would make sense because this is a really trippy little cult. So yeah, so but yeah, no, they don't they don't ever bring up. They just like he died of fright. Too bad. So. Yeah, as I said, we come back from a commercial, and it's the next day, and Mike is telling Frank, you should go home, see your family, get some rest. And Frank is like, that kid died of fright. And Mike says, he was so full of LSD, they'll never know what he died of. And Frank says he couldn't escape it, whatever it was. And Mike mentions what Frank described last night was the face of the beast. And Frank says he saw it the day he arrived. Mike says he's seen the face of evil, but that face has always been a man's face. Mm-hmm. He's always believed that evil is born in a cold heart and a weak mind. Frank is like, yeah, me too. But he also has that look of like, yeah, me too. Until now. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but that's the look on his right. face. So, 
Yeah. I also, I couldn't be taken out of it. They obviously filmed this conversation the same time as the previous conversation they had when he had the Polaroids. They just kind of had them rotate like 90 degrees because the backgrounds are slightly different, but you can kind of see the same hedgerow behind them and they're wearing the same exact clothes they had in it. Oh, that's funny. So I get it because you're filming and you're like, we're in this location. You guys need to have a discussion. Just the two of you face to face, close up. Let's do it. Okay. We need to film the next scene later when you guys are doing this. So rotate. So it looks like we're not in the same place, which it kind of does. But then I was like, yeah, they were the same clothes. And they were. And then went back and looked and you can see the same hedgerow behind. Yeah. Behind well, also, and now it's behind Frank. So. And like in universe, if that's the office, they're going to be standing outside it a lot. Right. So that would make sense. Yeah. That that's they're true. In the same but they're also area. wearing the same clothes. Yeah. Oh, so. no, for sure. I'm not saying that you didn't catch that. No. I'm just saying that. No, I just think it's, I mean, I, I totally get it. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not it's not super obvious. That was the same background and everything. It's just they, they did have them turn to kind of like disguise it. So it was mm-hmm. kind of cool. But yeah, I just think it was funny. So, yeah. Again, eyeball. <laughs> gotcha. So then back home. Frank is back in Seattle, apparently, and he's back up on the ladder and he's looking at the security light when Jack comes over with a newspaper. Fucking Jack. God damn it. I swear Jack. And Jack's like, oh, <sighs> were you out of town on work with your consulting company? <laughs> he's, he's asking a lot of questions. And he kind of chats. You, man, the dude is just. <laughs> mm. And he kind of chats about how consulting is one of those jobs. You always kind of wonder what it means. Like he's kind of that's his way of asking, like, what the hell do you really do? And Frank's like, well, basically, we're given a problem and we try to solve it. And Jack's like, oh, well, did you solve the problem you were working on? And Frank's like, no, I couldn't even make sense of it. Mm. Jack, 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 Jack. So then later we see Frank and he's flipping through a Bible and he finds a passage, Matthew 25, 41, that reads, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this quote is part of Matthew 25, 41. The entire section is, then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, the translations are slightly different depending on which Bibles you go to. This one says everlasting fire. The one that I looked up, well, the one that I chose says eternal fire. Because I actually found a database that lets you type in Bible passages and it shows you how it's written in every single version of the Bible. Just totally sweet. Almost every single one does have the whole part about the left hand though. So also earlier before he finds that quote, He is looking at Matthew 21, and we zoom in on a section that is number 12. So it'd be Matthew 21, 12, that I could not find a matching translation for. And so I think it's actually a fake Bible verse. And it says, the rulers of darkness of this world are contending for mastery over the bodies and minds of all members of the human race. But the text immediately before that, that's on the screen, is actually from Ephesians 6, 16, 17, which reads, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then we get the other part that says the rulers of darkness. So they are obviously playing a little fast and loose with the Bible which is kind of disappointing because as we saw last episode, they were actually on the mark with the whole Nostradamus citation thing. So, I mean, they didn't tell us which century and quatrain it was. I did that, but they actually used the correct. Yeah. 
I mean, so. I literally don't care if people play fast and loose with the Bible, so it doesn't no. matter to me in any way. And just like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And the first one's fine. They just kind of edit it so it narrows it down so it kind of has more import. But then they kind of like stick a, I think, probably made up verse into other verses, which are then not numbered correctly. So, yeah. Kind of like, eh. You know, if you're yeah, Bible, I mean, they're doing what they need be... to for the plot, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm just very interested in the Bible. Actually, oh. I was going to become well, actually, for a while, I thought about joining religion, but I couldn't decide which one. And then I was going to study comparative religion at one point, and I didn't, but I'm very interested in religion. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I'm just so. <laughs> for shows like this i'm like they're just gonna use what they need and pick and choose yeah. and it's fine i, don't know. I, I just I, I just like when you use <laughs> when you use real stuff and then mix fake stuff in i get kind of like because yeah. there are people who are really you know truly believe this and i'm i'm fine with you believing stuff if it doesn't hurt anybody else no totally no so but then also don't mess that up for people so i don't know <laughs> yeah so then, like I said, he's reading that, he's looking at it, and then Catherine walks in and asks if he wants to say goodnight to Jordan. And she sees he's reading the Bible, and she's kind of like, you know, making jokes about, oh, her death's a good story, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, and then she basically asks him, like, you know, are you looking for moral guidance or just a little bedtime reading? And he says, just some answers, I guess. And she asks if he wants to talk about it, but he says he's just confused about something he thought he understood about evil. And then Catherine says, science and psychology have given them a clearer idea of why people commit evil acts. She sees it every day. Abuse kids become abusive adults. And so then Frank is like, so the true source of evil is us or is it something out there waiting until it can create another rape, another murder, another Holocaust? And he asks her what she would tell a child, what he should tell Jordan. And Catherine says that maybe he should just tell her goodnight. Mm-hmm. He gets up and he kisses Catherine because he's like you're right I'm being silly I mean he doesn't say that but basically she's like yeah and then he goes up and tucks Jordan into bed Mm -hmm. does the good dad thing yep sometimes the women gotta make the men realize that they're being weird (laughs) so yes especially on shows like this for some reason (laughs) and in real life honestly so because men be weird so (laughs) people be weird let's be honest so in his basement office, he turns on his computer and he goes online, which is a challenge in 1996. It's doable. just requires modem. Yeah, he's got to like initialize the modem and it's all yeah. <laughs> making all those fun modem sounds that we maybe remember if you're old enough to remember mm-hmm. that. And then he opens a dictionary and he finds the word Gehenna. So he searches the term online and then his phone rings and it's Mike and Mike is still in San Francisco. And he tells him that they got forensic data back on the dead boy. His clothes and tissue showed traces of an insecticide used in the making of something called sarin. And sarin gas is what was used in the subway attack in Japan. The leader of the cult responsible for that attack is believed to be responsible for other murders. And Mike asks if Frank knows how he disposed of his victims. And Frank says, an industrial scale microwave. And then he has another vision of someone burning in a chamber. So super fun times. Yay. So Mike continues that that cult leader had amassed billions of dollars and had been trying to buy weapons from the Russians and to get a hold of the Ebola virus. And Frank is like, he wanted to bring about Armageddon. 
So then his computer search finally loads because, again, this is the 90s. This stuff took forever. And one of the results is the business listing for Gehenna International. It looks like an offshore holding company that holds industrial products like chemicals. And one of their plants is in San Francisco. And Mike is like, I'm on it. And they hang up. So Mike is going to go investigate. Mm -hmm. And after a moment, Frank grabs the phone and dials the number and the phone rings, but there's no answer. So Frank goes upstairs to his bedroom and Catherine asks what's wrong. And Frank is like, I have a really bad feeling about something. So he picks up the phone next to the bed and he dials again. Yeah. They obviously have two phone lines because he was online with his modem and then Mm -hmm. he got a phone call. So obviously yes. two lines for that. Yeah, one. which is yeah. good. If you could have a dedicated line for your modem, you wouldn't get interrupted anytime someone called you. It was yeah. better. And it wasn't clear really who he was calling, but we're going to figure it out now what's going on because we do see like a phone ringing, like, you know, office looking thing. It's almost like a, like a morgue office or like that kind of, he was trying to call Mike back. He, mm-hmm. like, that's why he hesitated and he went to go call Mike back, but Mike had already left. Right. Because then we see that Mike arrives at the building owned by Gehenna International and he walks around with his flashlight and inside he finds the room where we saw the telemarketers dudes all working at the tables. And he walks in and the screen is still on and it says facilitate envy. And then as he's looking at it, it changes and says work will set you free. And so he turns around and it's one of those little black domes in the ceiling that the slide projector obviously or digital projector whatever it is is actually projecting the screen on but then also whether through that hole or from somewhere else we get an image of him in green filter and we kind of see like the little like goggle kind of thing too that mm-hmm. maybe the dude is watching him yeah. so you almost expect mike to turn around and there'd be someone there going to kill him but nope mike continues yeah. looking around and he goes into a storage room in the warehouse and he finds barrels of sodium fluoride. And then next to it are crates either going to or coming from the Republic of China. I'm not sure which. I know they're just tagged like Republic of China. But Mike mm-hmm. opens the crate and then he cuts the paper on one of them. And it looks like AK-47s, some kind yep. of rifle. Yeah. Gun you know, yeah. Some so serious weapons. guns. Some serious yeah, hardcore serious guns. guns. Yeah. Yeah. And then we cut and we see police cars racing through the rain. Lots of sirens, lights and everything. And then Mike gets to the back of the warehouse. And there's this big industrial door with a little window in it, as if like to a giant microwave oven or something. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and he looks inside, he peeks through the because the door is ajar. He looks inside, and there's a bunch of ash. So he goes inside. Oh God, don't to do examine that. Examine the ash on the floor. And guess what? The door closes behind him. Of course it does. Why would and then you the go microwave inside? turns on? And he's trying to be on the door and he's looking through the thing. And we see the man with the goggles are standing right outside looking at him through the glass in the window. Yeah. I mean, I just never go inside the large industrial murder machine, especially if you suspect a murderous cult leader might be watching you on hidden cameras or might be there or someone changed that slide. Is it automatic? Maybe. But you don't know that. Like, yeah, this whole scene, I was like, first, I was like, as soon as he gets out of the car and is looking through the flash, I'm like, why did you go there alone? What are you doing? Why are you there alone? That's not good. Don't go there alone. And then I'm like, no. And then he's like, look at the door. I'm like, don't go in there. Just look. Don't go in there. Don't go in. And then he's gone. And then I'm like, no. 
much. I know. I know. So, I mean, yeah. like the guy could have pushed him or something if he caught him at the right moment, but don't walk in by yourself willingly. That's yeah. just stupid. I mean, that's what I thought was going to happen too. Cause he really, he, it takes him a long time before he goes in there. He's standing at the door, just looking for a long time. And I'm like, he's going to get pushed in and they're going to close the door. But then he goes in of his own volition. I'm like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> don't yeah. do that. But also I have to say, like, I don't remember the last time I like yelled at a television and was yeah. like fully invested <laughs> in the situation. So good okay. job. I have to say good job. Millennium. So, yeah. That happens to me all the time. I yell at the X-Files a lot. <laughs> well, so do I, but usually not because I'm invested because <laughs> I'm angry, but anyway, oh, so <laughs> I'm invested. I'm invested. Luckily a SWAT team arrives at the warehouse and they managed to get in and they turn the microwave off and they call for EMTs. And so who oh, knows what's going on? Oh, man. Oof, that was a, yeah. it's a good thing that someone probably called like a SWAT backup team of some kind. Mm-hmm. I wonder who could have done that from their bedroom in Seattle. Yeah, probably Frank. Yeah. So then, you know, obviously it's a little bit later and the television news is reporting the roundup and arrest of what is being called a death cult. And we see young men being let out in cuffs. And then the police put an older man into the back of a car. And the anchor says the suspected leader is a former chemical engineer named Ricardo Clement. He's being held under suspicion of murder of at least one cult member. Authorities confiscated a large cache of biological and other weapons. You think they could also possibly hold him under not suspicion of attempted murder of... Mike Atkins. Which maybe they are. Maybe they're just not reporting that to the news, but yeah. Oh, because they're secret. Maybe the whole Mike thing there is like, hush, hush. Maybe. Yeah. So Frank watches the news report and then he leaves the room. And he goes into the viewing area of an interrogation room. Inside, Peter is questioning Clement, asking how many boys died in there. But Clement sits silent. He's not answering. He's not saying a word. Yeah. And obviously, Frank hopped a flight to San Francisco. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. So Peter gives up and walks back into the viewing room and he tells Frank he's gotten nothing. And then Clement gets up and he walks to the two way mirror and he stands face to face with Frank, who has another flash of visions. And Frank says he thinks he knows who he is. And he tells Peter he's got to get out of there. Who is he? Is he the devil? Maybe. Maybe he's Donnie Faster. Oh, God, I hope not. I know we're going to have to deal with him again. I just hope not in this show. So in the hospital, Mike is lying in a bed that's surrounded by a plastic protective sheeting. And Frank is sitting next to him. And the door opens and Jim tells Frank that his wife is there. And Catherine is behind Jim. So Catherine also hopped to fight San Francisco. Boom. Yeah. They walk down the hall and Frank says she didn't have to come. And Catherine says she wanted to be here. She knows this is what Frank fears, losing control, having something like this happen to the people he cares about. And Frank says that Mike has some serious internal damage from the radiation, but the doctors say that he'll pull through. Catherine says she knows and that he will. And she asked him, like, how many lives did you just save? Like, how many others would have been hurt by those weapons? Like, basically telling him, like, you did good, right? right. Like, stop yeah, looking at the failure. Yeah, you did a good job. You did a good job. And basically you saved his life by making that phone call. Honestly, they, they don't mention that, but seriously, he did. Right. Yeah. And Frank is like, I know. And then Catherine tells him that he caught the bad man. But Frank says he's not so sure if the bad man can be caught. And then they hug. Mm-hmm. And then it's the end. 
Yep. Yep. That's episode two. (laughs) Episode two. They changed the scene transitions in this episode. I had mentioned last episode that I really liked how they did the, like we would start out desaturated and then it would come in. We'd get like the normal saturation and then it would start. They changed to a different technique on this episode where it starts out like in a blowout, like super white. And then it kind of like comes back. It's almost like, almost like they're doing the effect backwards. Like you would normally see like an effect and then it would blow out and become white. They're doing it backwards where it starts out all white and then like blows into the normal scene. Mm-hmm. Not a fan of it. It also yeah. tends to, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the digital whatever with the DVDs and, you know, making these so that we can watch them, you know, ripping the DVDs and so on. Like it, it, it glitches periodically. Like the image isn't as smooth. And so I don't know if that's something that's just, the technology and what was pro- i'm sure it was probably fine like on the original viewing and if you know we're looking at film or whatever but it's just i don't like the look of it at all and then also it kind of has a tendency to glitch a little bit on the screen so i like it way better i thought that was i thought that yeah. was i, I really like that like because they also not only did they do like the like it was desaturated and then go it was also like it was like frozen like because like when the first scene in the in the pilot like the rain we open and it's raining like crazy but there's no rain falling and everything's super gray and then it saturates and then the rain starts falling. It's like it's frozen and then it all starts to come. And I thought that was cool. They did that in the first episode and they're doing a different. So I don't know if what they're going to choose. I like the pilot one better, but I don't know. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, also, a really abrupt ending. Like, I, like boom. Yeah, it didn't Done. feel super abrupt to me, but I do watch a lot of procedurals, so I feel like maybe I'm just used to that kind of like, okay, we're done now, we're moving on. Yeah, well, because I mean, also hug, like they have a moment. We see, right? Well, well, I'm not that ending. I meant like the whole like we captured the bad guy ending. Like Mike is in oh, the microwave, yeah, 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 and yeah. he's standing there looking at Mike, right? Mike, is, and we see like Mike like fade because he's like banging on the window trying to get out, and then like the heat overtakes him, and he kind of like, crumples and he disappears from the window, and then we see the the team burst in. And then, and then we cut to the news footage of like, oh, we kept, like, we don't see like the guy standing there getting caught or anything. It's like they bust in and the dude's not there at all. They just, and they get the door open and they get Mike and all that kind of stuff. So they have apparently caught him, found him at some point, but like, it just seemed very like fast. Yeah. I think maybe that's Also, I never typical. got my cool lost boy werewolves. Sometimes. Oh yeah. You did not. And I'm sorry about that. That would have been yeah. very cool. It doesn't seem like that's this show though. No, but I gotta cool. say. But it, it is very I'm cool. not sure that's X-Files either, honestly. No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. they might have some more werewolves at some point, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of actually all I have for this episode. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about it. Like, it was good. It no. was solid. It was, yeah. I mean, again, a horror show for me. So thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Chris Carter, with your weird obsession with, yeah, making, I don't know. Anyway, but... <laughs> Other than the nightmare fuel, it was burning great. people alive in yes. San Francisco and like teeth everywhere. So anyway, ear, yeah, super. At least at least one ear. Just <laughs> the ear didn't freak me out, bush. but the teeth the teeth freak me out. The ear is probably the if I had to pick out something that I would be like eh, the ear because like how they even mentioned like don't know how it survived, but lucky it did. Yeah really lucky it did because yeah exactly that is extremely yeah. lucky because it's very <laughs> unlikely that cartilage would survive if you're burning bone but anyway. and also if you're dumping ashes you would probably see like the ear flop out when you're dumping it so well maybe they're doing it at night 
And it's those incompetent telemarketer boys. They don't know what's going on. They're just like, dump the ash so we can go get high. Incompetent telemarketer boys. (laughs) (laughs) When they're they're first doing the call, he doesn't really totally like Jerry O'Donnell vibe, like from Sliders. He just had that. It was that 90s young dude look that was popular. It was Mm -hmm. just getting that feel from that dude who was on the phone at first. Not the guy who ends up getting like drugged or whatever who wasn't making calls but the first guy we see making the calls it was i totally got that vibe but anyway. yeah all right well you said it felt solid what would you rate it i'm gonna give this one a six like i feel six, like it was okay. solid it wasn't as good as the pilot i feel like there's probably going to be some better episodes but it's okay. it's pretty good like it all came together it all made sense i understood like where they got things i felt like everything did happen kind of fast but that's just because it was a lot to cover I guess mm-hmm. like the death cult was good. That was creepy. I was interested. So yeah. Yeah. Why well, it was telemarketers and hair care products. I'm not sure, but I guess we had to have something that was. Yeah. Cause you got to sell something and I guess he does chemical. He's a chemical engineer. Yeah. So I don't know a whole lot about the whole Japanese sarin thing too. I mean, I know when that happened hearing about it, the subway attack and all that kind of stuff, but I yeah, I remember like that too, thing. but I don't know like the whole thing about like the dude that amassed millions of dollars and that kind of thing. I don't, know how much yo i don't know anything about and the giant industrial microwave oven i don't know if that how much of that was actually true or not i don't know but yeah i mean i did not look it up they are they are they're not doing that thing where they're making up an event that's similar they're actually mentioning like a real event that happened in the world Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure how much they're messing with that but then again they're moving bible verses around too so who knows anyway i did not look it up so i don't know yeah (laughs) I am going to go, this one is a good contender for one that I may have to readjust later. Okay. Just because we're so early. But based on the pilot and then going with this, I'm also going to go down, but I'm not going to go down as much. I'm going to go down to an eight. So I'm just going to go one knockdown from last episode, whereas you went two because you went from eight to a six. I'm going to go yeah. from nine to an eight. Um, I do think it's still I don't know like I said I I was worried that we were gonna like this was my idea to do these but then I was also slightly worried because (laughs) as I mentioned before that the kind of like content isn't really my jam but I'm really liking these and I don't know how much of that is just like Lance Henriksen just carrying the show because he like I'm totally just like he's my dude so yeah also, pretty good job, Chris Carter. You wrote two pretty good episodes. You wrote the yeah. pilot of X-Files. Awesome. You wrote Dwayne Barry, which I love. Again, another really high caliber actor in that role, too. Maybe helped a lot. So, I don't know. He, he, I mean, everybody has hits and misses. So, Well, yeah. And I don't. I think Chris Carter is a good writer. He obviously has his quirks, which we point out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, he definitely has some good moments and he knows what he's doing. He definitely knows how to create a compelling television show so good for him yeah. yeah all right well we'll see we had chris carter write last episode we had chris carter write this episode and the next episode is gonna be written by our old buddies glenn morgan and james wong interesting so i'm curious to see how next episode goes i haven't watched it yet so i have no idea okay so that'll yeah. be interesting it will we be. hope you'll join us next time for millennium monday yeah Millennium Monday. That is so good. And thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We hope you're enjoying these episodes and we really appreciate your support. Yes. And if you're new because you're like, God, listen to those Millennium episodes, I hope you're also enjoying all the other content in the archive and mm-hmm. continue to enjoy as we go along. 
So yeah, thank you. Thank you. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz and The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday and episode three, Dead Letters. As we try to figure out if the the truth truth is is still out there. there. Justice. Woo! Yes. <laughs>
friends.